Realtor.com is making a stand for buyer representation, and you can too. Join Realtor.com in sharing the list of 111 things buyer's agents do. Visit Realtor.com slash buyer agent toolkit to help spread the word. Buyer agents are essential. So the role of the agent and the broker and the relationship between the agent and the broker has changed a lot, but we're, we're on a pretty clear trajectory in favor of the agent at the expense of the brokerage. Being a broker is much harder today than it was 15 years ago. Why? It's because the things that a broker used to provide to an agent have mostly been disaggregated and disintermediated. So what did the brokerage used to provide to the agent? Well, office space, lead generation, technology and software, culture, branding, you know, office space. Well, agents don't really need that much anymore. Um, Technology, well, agents are mostly buying that themselves individually. Uh, Lead generation, well, they're mostly buying that from Zillow Group or Realtor.com or Google. Uh, Branding, well, the internet kind of is their brand now and social media is their brand. They don't need the brokerage as much for it anymore. It's a lot harder to be a brokerage and a broker that demonstrates that value to agents than it used to be. Welcome to the Real Trending Podcast, where your host, Tracy Velt, Editorial Director of Real Trends, interviews the brightest minds in real estate. Each week, brokerage leaders, top agents, team leaders, and industry experts join Tracy to share their trends, their secrets to success, and the lessons they've learned navigating this ever-changing industry. Welcome to the Real Trending Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds in real estate about leadership, business growth trends, and strategy. I'm your host, Tracy Velt, Editorial Director of Real Trends. Today, I'd like to welcome Spencer Raskoff, an entrepreneur and company leader who co-founded Zillow, Hotwire, Picasso, Supernova's Family of SPACs, and 75 and Sunny, among other companies. Uh, so welcome, Spencer. Thanks for Thank being you. on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tracy. Excited to be here. Yeah, I just want to start a little bit about the evolution of PropTech. I know you're speaking at Housing Wire Annual about that, and I thought it was really interesting for the real estate audience um, to know a little bit about the fourth wave um, that you talked about and, and how it impacts them. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about what that wave um, entails? Maybe briefly go over the first three um, sure. and then you know how they're impacted by it. Sure. So I think the first phase of prop tech innovation was from about 1995 to 2005. And that was an era when early businesses took offline classifieds businesses and put them online. So realtor.com and housevalues.com are perfect examples or home gain of those early companies. And they were very innovative at the time and they were rewarded for for being so. They were successful public companies. Then um, that next phase was sort of 2005 to 2015 when companies like Zillow and Trulia and Redfin tried to turn on the lights and empower the consumer with access to information. They aimed to to remedy the information asymmetry between the practitioner, the real estate agent or the real estate professional and the consumer. And there were new business models that emerged during that time, uh, mostly around connecting the consumer with the professionals. Uh, the, The next phase was more around greasing the skids of the transaction itself. 
And uh, if you think of a funnel at the top of the funnel, you've got search and discovery. And then towards the bottom of the funnel, you've got the actual transaction. So greasing the skids of the transaction itself. These are companies like iBuyers, companies like OfferPad and Open Door that are trying to create a better way to sell your home. They're power buyers, companies like Ribbon and Fly Homes that are trying to create a better way to buy a home. And then there are other people in the transaction, companies like Domo on the mortgage origination side, Doma on the uh, title and appraisal side, um, and uh, a loft on the appraisal side. So all of them are trying to reduce friction in the transaction. And then now you have kind of this, this next wave, which is more around democratizing real estate as an asset class. It's, I think, around 18% of GDP. It's a huge industry, a huge part of the American economy. And yet it's pretty inaccessible to most people because the ticket sizes are so big. And so companies like Arrived Homes and Roofstock are fractionalizing real estate investing. Companies like Picasso are fractionalizing second home ownership. And that's trying to create more accessibility for this asset class of real estate. And so I, I, I think that's interesting because I've also seen kind of a shift um, in the brokerage industry where you know, it used to be only about the agent and the consumer was kind of the agent's concern where now I feel like brokers are really focusing duly on both of those audiences and realizing that they really have to offer consumers as many options as possible. Um, you know, so tell me a little bit about what you see as far as um, what brokers, really real estate brokers and agents should um, be doing or how they can grab that opportunity. So the role of the agent and the broker and the relationship between the agent and the broker has changed a lot in the 15 years or so that I've been in prop tech. And, but, but we're, we're on a pretty clear trajectory in favor of the agent at the expense of the brokerage. In other words, it's, it's a much harder being a broker is much harder today than it was 15 years ago. And it, uh, you know, if you ask yourself why it's because the, Things that a broker used to provide to an agent have mostly been disaggregated and disintermediated. So what did the brokerage used to provide to the agent? Well, office space, lead generation, technology and software, culture, branding, you know, office space. Well, agents don't really need that much anymore. Um, technology. Well, agents are mostly buying that themselves individually. Uh, Lead generation, well, they're mostly buying that from Zillow Group or Realtor.com or Google. Uh, branding, well, the internet kind of is their brand now and social media is their brand. They don't need the brokerage as much for it anymore. Culture, which is something that brokerages generally provide uh, to agents. Well, a lot of that culture is coming from agent Facebook groups or from coaching or from events that the agent is attending outside of the brokerage. So it's a lot harder to be a brokerage that, and a broker that demonstrates that value to agents than it used to be. And, um, and then in the face of all this, you've got disruptive brokerage models, obviously, um, you know, making it, making it even more difficult. So different brokerages have adapted in different ways. I think the ones that are trying to include the consumer in the conversation, as you suggest, Tracy, um, to, to explain that there's a third constituent in this triangle between agent, broker, and consumer. It's not just between agent and broker. I think those are, are better served. I think those folks will do much better than those that continue to ignore the consumer. Yeah, I know. It's um, extremely difficult to be a real estate broker, um, especially since you're also competing against these massive teams or teamerages, um, which as we've done studies on them at Real Trends are much more profitable um, than, than a traditional brokerage might be. So it is interesting. Um, you know, what, what in your opinion, uh, you know, 
what do bro- what should brokers do about that? They're the ones <laughs> yeah. listening to this, and and they're the ones suffering margin compression, looking at um, affiliated and core services to add to their to their um, bottom line. So yeah, so I mean that's that's the first the first place I would start, and obviously brokerages are already all over this, and Berkshire Hathaway Home Services is a good example. But every brokerage is trying to figure out how to attach mortgage and attach other ancillary services, and and of course as, as they should. Um, uh, that can be a bit of a lifeline to to a brokerage. I think, uh, you know, full disclosure, I'm also an investor in Avenue 8 and Radius Agent, which mm-hmm. are two brokerages with a pretty disruptive business model. They are kind of the EXP of 2022 or what Remax and Keller Williams were in the 70s, 80s, and 90s and 2000s, which is to say they provide very little to agents, but they charge very little. And now, by the way, they might not love me describing them that way as as providing very little. But the fact is, they're basically cloud brokerages that um, you know recruit agents by saying, "We're not going to charge you very much, but we're going to give you a little bit of software, a little bit of branding, and let you be an agent within our brokerage." And um, you know, I think that's a winning strategy as a brokerage. Now, you have to adjust your cost structure to adapt to that if you've got expensive leases and you've got you know, branding and office space and other, other, uh, you know, you, you like, if you've got a cost structure that, that can't support, uh, just charging an agent a couple hundred, or a couple thousand dollars a year, then you may need to look at adjusting that unless you've got such significant market share in a given geography where you can pull it off. Um, you know, Windermere, for example, in Seattle, where I lived for 15 years, Windermere and John L. Scott, both have great brands, great brand recognition, uh, with the consumer, it does mean something to have a Windermere sign outside your house or a John L. Scott sign outside your house in the Seattle area. And um, and it does mean something if you're an agent and you've got Windermere or John L. Scott on your business card. So I do think there are going to be some exceptions where there are geographies where certain brand- brokerage brands are strong enough that they can sort of get away with the old business model, which is charging agents a lot, but also providing a, a, a lot. But in general, I think uh, brokerages have to adapt to this new normal where agents are getting a lot of these brokerage type services elsewhere. Yeah. And I actually see a lot of those um, maybe flat fee or or, um, brokerages who are expanding in the services that they offer while charging less to the agent as well. And they're growing quickly on our rankings as well. Yes, that's that's right. And that's, you know, that's this. The strategy that I would pursue if I were starting a brokerage, which I'm certainly not, um, is exactly that, which is try to grow agent count with a really inexpensive, you know, let's call it EXP-like product offering. And then once you get 10,000, 25,000, 50,000 agents, then you move into ancillary services, you upsell them, maybe search engine marketing or lead generation, and you sort of try to re reconstitute the bundle, if you will, but you're starting with a, a, a free or nearly free product. I mean, it's 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 actually taking a page out of the internet business model playbook, which is freemium. I mean, most services or or apps, for example, think of most apps that you use, they're basically free with some in-app purchases. And that's sort of what that brokerage business model is, is kind of free-ish or nearly free with in-app purchases, if you will, to add on, say, technology or lead generation or yeah, I want to attend the events and and get buy more culture and buy more coaching and training from my brokerage. And um it's it's sort of a freemium in-app purchase model. That is an interesting way to look at it. I have never heard anybody describe <laughs> it like that. 
Um, I, I do want to touch on fractional ownership. We've touched on it on the podcast um, some in the past, but what do you see as kind of the next iteration of, of a service like Picasso? So Picasso is growing really quickly. We're in 40 markets in four countries. We're the fastest company to become a unicorn and it lets people buy a portion of a second home. And so it's a much more economical, affordable, and easier way to accomplish second home ownership. We're trying to democratize access to second home ownership. And, um, uh, you know, we have great product market fit right now because for most people, for most knowledge workers, they can spend more time in a second home than they ever expected. And they want to own real property. And Picasso is one of the only ways that most people can afford to own a house in Aspen or Vail or Tahoe or Malibu or um, Naples, Florida, uh, et cetera. Uh, so where's Picasso going? We're just continuing to expand into more markets and, and more homes. Um, we uh, already are seeing a lot of benefits of scale and network effects where we have many, many, many Picasso owners now that own two Picassos or three or four. I think we've got a couple fives where people are like, yeah, I would love a, a beach house and a ski house. Um, or I'd love a place in Miami in, in a condo building. I want to own an eighth of it or a quarter of it. And also a, you know, a, a, a vineyard property in Napa Valley. So that's where we're going is just continuing to expand, continuing to grow. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a great product that really has perfect product market fit in 2022 when people now have more time than ever to be able to work from second homes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you're obviously an entrepreneur. You've started and sold a lot, quite a few successful companies. Um, and obviously, real estate brokers are entrepreneurs as well. So, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some lessons that you've learned through the process that helped you kind of hone your leadership skills. One of the most important things when starting a company and when running a company and sustaining a company is to make sure that it's mission oriented. People, especially young people, want to work at companies that they think are part of something bigger than themselves. And so if you're a brokerage in, you know, whatever, pick your city, it's not enough to just run it like a business and say, this is a real estate brokerage and this is how we make money. People don't want to work at companies like that anymore. You have to really connect and tie your company's strategy to a larger mission. We're trying to help increase home ownership in city XYZ, or we're trying to help agents achieve their full potential by giving them the tools and resources that they need uh, uh, you know, from our brokerage. Like Really making a company mission-oriented is, is absolutely critical. As an indiv individual, it's also important to surround yourself with great people that can complement your skills and your strengths and weaknesses, and also have a lot of diversity of thought and diversity of experience on that leadership team. Because Diverse teams just make better decisions. If you have people that all come from the same background, all look alike, talk alike, went to the same schools, um, and have the same life experience, you're not going to make as good decisions as if you have a diverse group of people involved in the leadership of the company. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. It's part of kind of Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team is you have to have people willing to, to speak up and be honest and have honest conversations about things that are happening in the company. So, so somebody just told me, I, I wasn't familiar with this term, but a mm -hmm. friend of mine just told me about um, an Israeli military concept. I think it's called 10th man or 10th person, um, okay. which supposedly, and I don't know if this is true or just kind of lore, but I, I, I like the sound of it. So I'm going to, I'm going to pretend it's true. Supposedly in every Israeli battalion, there is somebody who's, whose specific role it is to be sort of the gadfly. So if you're like, if the, if the, 
captain of the of the team is like, okay, we're gonna go storm that, you know, storm that building or storm that bunker or whatever. There's somebody, even though it's a little counter to what you think of as military command and control, there's somebody whose job is to say, well, hold on, is that a good idea? You know, have we thought about this? Have we considered that? What if the enemy does this? And that moment of pause and reflection and of, of sort of diverse dissent makes for better decisions at that at that critical point in combat. And um, you know, I think I think that's very important. We we had a decision making philosophy at Hotwire that we called uh, "Listen, Decide, Communicate." Uh, maybe it was "Listen, Debate, Decide, Communicate." I think. And it, you know, what we meant by that was at the point of making the decision, it's very important to have diverse viewpoints and have everyone argue it out and hash it out. And then you reach some combined consensus decision, and then you have to communicate that. And it's very important that people don't walk out of that room disgruntled and then dis- and then secretly undercut, undermine the decision. And actually at Zillow, we used to role play on this where we'd have to, one of the management training um, modules that we had at Zillow was to communicate to a team, the decision of killing their project. So you had to role play, walking up to an engineer and say, I know you worked on this thing for six months, but here's why we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to kill it. And the worst thing you can do in that situation is to undermine the decision. Be like, hey, you know, you're awesome. You did a great job on this project, but those jerks upstairs, they they decided that we're going to get rid of this. And so that's why we're killing, like, that's the, the word. What that does is that actually undermines you as a manager. You might think that that pushes the blame to somebody else and that's good for you. But actually all it says, all it does is it trains, trains the individual to, to think that you, that you're worthless. And then they're thinking to themselves, well, why am I even talking to you as my manager? I should go talk to the people upstairs. They're the ones that really matter. You're, you know, what are you? Um, anyway, um, these, these decision-making and decision communicating tactics are super important and they're usually, you know, most companies just kind of ignore all this stuff because they're focused on running the business day to day, but I'm a believer that these things matter. Now, I agree. I think when you and and I think that it has to extend outside of just leadership. Um, You know, there a lot of times what happens is leaders make a decision and they just tell people they just tell them this is the decision we made. Um, And, you know, I think that creates a lot of friction at a company rather than, you know, the leadership team can make a decision on their own, but they should also be be explaining that decision and and asking for feedback about that decision, depending on what it is, um, obviously. So, so yeah, I, I, I love the idea of having someone kind of a 10th man questioning, you know, questioning what's going on. And um, I think that's missing because a lot of people are just afraid to speak up. They, you know, they want to keep their job or they (laughs) don't really trust themselves to have the, to, to really be thinking as clearly as they think they are. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. Um, So what is kind of your aha moment um, in your career that really inspired you or motivated you to keep moving forward, you know, whichever company it was, or maybe it was before you founded your first company? Well, at Zillow, the, the, when you say the phrase aha moment, I immediately think of when we came up with the idea for Zillow. So, Mm -hmm. you know, to bring you back to that moment, that was 2006 and my co-founders and I were in a conference room in a high rise in downtown Seattle. And we were looking at Queen Anne, which is a residential neighborhood across across Lake Union. And we were looking at all these houses, there are these Victorian houses across the lake and thinking, gosh, can you imagine if you had sort of a God's eye view of those homes and you could see into each of them 
and know what every one of them was worth and know what everyone paid for those homes. It was, I mean, we didn't even have the concept of augmented reality yet, but we were basically describing like augmented reality glasses where you could see a layer of information on top of these homes. And there's a great picture. It's somewhere on the internet of, of me, a much younger version of me, 2006, standing at the whiteboard, sketching this out and drawing a, a picture of a, of a stock price graph. And I scrawled on the board, you know, a price on every rooftop, the value of homes move like stocks. And the idea was, you know, what if we could figure out what every house in the country was worth and plot the change of that home value every single day on a line graph? That would be really voyeuristic, really interesting. People would love to see that for their own house, for their ex spouse, you know, ex-wife's house, ex-girlfriend's house, boss's house, their parents' house. And that would drive a lot of virality and uh, and traffic, which it did. So that was certainly an aha moment when we came up with this idea. And it wasn't for six months until we actually launched it because we had to go and build that first version of the product in 2006. Yeah. And monetize that, that whole yes, idea. Yes. And the monetizing <laughs> it came a couple of years later. That That's a great, a great point, Tracy, which, which that was not a priority at the time. I mean, we, at the time it was like, oh, monetization, that's what the VCs are for. That's what venture capital is for. And that will allow us to hold our breath long enough to get a lot of traffic. And although we did launch with AdSense on the website, so we had a couple couple bucks coming in from advertising from Google, we didn't really monetize the product for the first couple of years. It wasn't until we had a lot of traffic that then we built an agent connection product where agents could buy advertising. But that came quite a bit later once we had a lot of traffic. Yeah. And I've been in the business long enough to remember when Zillow came into being. Um, and I, I, at, I think at the very early stages, you were at one of the real trends gathering of Eagles um, talking yes. about it. So, yeah, I, I, I remember those conferences well. Um, and, <laughs> you know, they weren't always a super friendly audience from some of the no. some of the attendees. And that's OK. <laughs> I made it my I made it my mission to still show up. And yeah. um, and I learned a lot. I mean, I, I approached those conversations with humility. And that was important. I, you know, now that I'm I primarily invest in other people's startups and also start companies as a founder and, and chairperson, I've seen a lot of disruptors that approach their industry with a lot of arrogance. And and there, and and to be fair, there there were people at Zillow that approached the real estate industry with arrogance. I tended not to be one of them, but I felt all those conversations with you know Joe Deasy at Windermere and Gary Keller at Keller Williams and you know, uh, Alex Perillo and Richard Smith at Realogy. I mean, I learned a ton from every one of those conversations. These are accomplished business people that have been in the real estate industry in some cases for decades. And I had a lot to learn from them and they helped make Zillow better. And, uh, you know, I, I think every one of those conversations that I had and every one of those objections that we faced helped make the company a better company. Um, even though those were sometimes awkward conversations, you know, of me trying to explain what we were and what we weren't. And um, I, I'm grateful to platforms like like Gathering of Eagles and Real Trends and other conferences like Housing Wire that created the forums for us to have those conversations. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I do remember a lot of interesting conversations about, about Zillow. So, yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk to you and you, you know, you invest in companies. So what is that since it relates to really real estate brokerage leaders because they do the same. Um, what does it, that process look like and what advice can you give them um, you know, from your perspective? 
Well, advice to brokerage leaders. I mean, your primary customer is the real estate agent. I think, as we already discussed, your secondary customer is the consumer. And it's secondary because that's who your real estate agent's customer is. So it's almost like, um, I don't know, if you're a if you're Cisco and you sell food products, not not the technology company, but the food company, you know, you sell food products to restaurants. Your customer is the restaurant, but your end customer is the consumer who's going to eat that food. And so, it is important for you to think about that end customer, not just your restaurant customer. So, brokerages are a B two B two C business, really, right? A business mm-hmm. to business to consumer. Um, so, don't forget about the consumer. And uh, as we already discussed, I think you have to refine and improve your value prop to your customer, which is a, another business person, which is the real estate agent. And um, and that's hard, uh, you know. As we've as we discussed, that's that's super hard. But that's that's the advice that I would give: is is don't forget about the end consumer and think of yourself as a B two B two C company. Well, and I'm thinking um, more along the lines of M and A, like brokerages purchasing other brokerages. Um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of similarities. Obviously, you're looking at the the P and L, and you know, you're you're looking at that. But there are a lot of um, other characteristics that you look for in a company. So, what are those? What are those characteristics? Yeah. What do you look for when you're investing in a company? Well, Zillow bought 17 companies when I was a CEO, and my new company, 75 and Sunny Ventures, is my family office venture firm. We have about a hundred startups that we're investors in. And across all of those targets, whether I was an investor or I was acquiring the company, I, I looked for pretty much the same things. I look for a company where the founding team and the founder are connected with the mission and they're in it for the right reasons. The reasons that they started the company is to try to achieve that mission, not just to make money. I look for great people. I think great people properly motivated, build great products that creates revenue and profit and shareholder value. And that's that's a chain of events that starts with great people properly motivated and fairly compensated. So I look very, very closely at the people. Um, uh, I look for, especially on the investing side, I look for a disconnect between TAM and NPS. So TAM is total addressable market, NPS is net promoter score. So if you can find a huge industry, big TAM, where everyone is really unhappy, low NPS, well, that is probably a recipe for an exciting company. So a perfect example of this is healthcare. I mean, healthcare is a massive industry and everybody's unhappy. Like everyone hates their doctor, hates their insurance company, hates their hospital. Everyone's low, very low, low, low NPS in healthcare, but huge TAM. Uh, real estate, frankly, has huge TAM, low NPS. Um, people actually like their real estate agent. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an interesting phenomenon about real estate. People love their real estate agent, but they hate real estate agents and brokers. And they hate the commission, but they like their person. It's a lot like Congress, actually. People gen- tend to love their Congress person, but they hate Congress, which yeah. is an interesting, you know, interesting dichotomy. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, in investing, I look for big TAM and you know, with with low NPS, and I look for great people that are trying to solve real problems for the right reasons. Okay, great. Um, and so, the, obviously, the real estate industry is constantly evolving. There's never been a market that is the same. Um, where do you see the most opportunities um, for brokerage leaders in the coming year? I worry a lot about potential regulatory changes um, mm-hmm. from the couple of lawsuits and DOJ investigations around cooperative compensation. And sometimes I feel like 
I, I'm the only person in the industry that's jumping up and down talking about this. Um, yeah. It's a bit of an exaggeration. Some some folks are paying attention, but I think mm-hmm. in general we're not focused enough on it. And there is a very real possibility that listing agents will not be able to share their compensation with buyers agents. I, I would put it at a 25% chance, which. Okay, 25% chance probably still means more likely than not, it won't happen. But I mean, that's 25% chance of a huge seismic change in our industry. And if that should happen, I, you know, I, I don't even know what all the implications are. I, I guess there'll be many tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of buyer's agents that will have to leave the industry. Consumers will have to pay buyer's agents themselves. Um, I, you know, I list, I, I don't even know it's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, NAR will have many fewer members like their Zillow will need a new business model because selling buyer leads doesn't really work. If buyers, if buyers have to pay buyer agents themselves. So it's, it's potentially seismic and it's impossible for me to think about the future five years from now without wondering about that possibility. Um, in addition to that, I think we're going to continue to see this trend of more and more power accruing to the agent and the team at the expense of the brokerage. Sorry to brokerage executives listening. You'll you'll need more advice from you know people like Real Trends than ever before to to navigate through what has what will continue to be an increasingly challenging backdrop, which is you know you're no stranger to. It's been that way for 15 years, but I don't think it'll get any better anytime soon. And um, uh, and then I guess you can, you know, again, more bad news. Uh, I think we have a challenging couple of years ahead in terms of housing uh, affordability is at an all time low. Uh, home buyers are kind of on strike right now as we record this podcast in the fall of 2022. Buyers are sitting on the fence. Um, sellers haven't really adjusted their price expectations, so everyone is kind of at a standstill. And I think that's going to make for a more challenging um, housing environment for agents and brokers over the next six or 12 months than it has been over the prior 12 months. Or, or 12 years. Yeah, especially since we have so many new agents. I mean, I think um, in our broker pulse survey that we do, that Real Trends does, we ask brokers just to guesstimate what percentage of their agents have never been in a down market. And that's relative. Obviously, it's been booming. So down is relative to what it was in the past. Um, but they, it was 25 to 75% of their agents. Um, so wow. they don't know about like how to do a price reduction. They don't have a script for speaking to a seller who has these ideas because the neighbor had you know twenty offers and sold above list that they should be too. Um, and the, but the market has basically changed on a dime, and that's no longer true. How do you how do you tell them that in a way that they don't automatically hate you? Yeah. <laughs> so. So, yeah. yeah, I mean that's 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 the opportunity, I guess, for the intermediaries in the industry, whether it's the coaches or the media mm-hmm. companies like yours, yeah. um, or the prognosticator, you know, talking heads like mine, um, yeah. is the, the, that the industry will need more advice and more help than ever before. <laughs> Absolutely, I totally agree. Um, my last question is just what's next for Picasso and Seventy Five and Sunny. Uh, 75 and Sunny has a lot of prop tech investments and uh, companies like Arrived Homes and Fly Homes and Ribbon and Aloft and uh, OfferPad and others. So I'm mostly helping these companies navigate the choppy waters that we're in and making sure that they're poised to, uh, first of all, survive, but then also benefit from the challenging road that that we're in the midst of. Um and on the Picasso side, we're leaning in. We continue to grow. Uh, you know, we 
we're selling a lot of Picassos. You know, just let me know, Tracy, when you're ready for yours. We can right. <laughs> we get, a, get a salesperson <laughs> on the phone and find that, you know, Newport or Malibu or, or uh, Napa, you know, Aspen, you just let me know. Um, yes. Definitely going to be a mountain area because I live in Florida. So all right, the beaches here. Well, (laughs) we've got, we've got, um, you know, we've got lots of great mountain Jackson hole. We've got great stuff, uh, Bend, Oregon, you name it. But, um, anyway, so, so we just continue to expand. We're in London now and in Spain and in in Mexico and Cabo and, uh, more of the same for Picasso. Well, great. Well, Spencer, I look forward to seeing you at Housingware annual and thanks so much for joining the real trending podcast. Great talking to you. Thank you for listening to Real Trending. If you haven't already, we'd love it if you'd take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. And we will see you next week with more news and insights.